Somerset Levels and Moors, February 2014. I was leading an initial assessment team on what was the first time for Samaritan's Purse in the UK, our first experience of domestic disaster relief. We drove to Moorland, uh, one of the villages most impacted by the flooding. Eight weeks after the initial disaster, the village could still only be accessed by means of what they called an all-terrain emergency response vehicle. Uh, Through water in places almost a metre in depth, we shared this bumpy journey with a middle-aged couple who, clinging to each other and to the jerky vehicle, hugged a couple of large, empty plastic bags to their chests. Bracing themselves emotionally, they had decided to return to their property to collect a few more possessions from the upper floor of their still-flooded home. It will be many months before their house, their, their home, uh, will be habitable again. You know, sometimes questions seem more appropriate than comments. Questions open people up. They demonstrate our willingness to respond to the other person's needs and agenda rather than to our, to our own. Where are you staying? Did you sleep last night? When did you last see your home? How are your pets doing? Later that evening, I re-ran the conversation in my mind and I realised that I'd asked eight questions in a row. Simple ones, practical ones, occasionally surprising ones with adequate space between them but without any comment or reply. I made sure I listened well to their simple answers. I stayed comfortable in the silences. I nodded. I kept warm and compassionate eye contact and offered just one statement at the end of our brief time together. I'm so sorry, I said simply. No, despite their warm smile and the obvious tenderness of our connecting, tears instantly welled up in their eyes. In the eyes of those homeowners, as once through the worst of the floods, they climbed back down from the truck and trudged their anxious way to their home. Simple story. Uh, And it goes on, but I'll leave it there. Um, But it focuses today, um, or what I want us to focus on from that story, is simply this, the value of asking questions. I want us to look for a little while at the questions that Jesus asked. Any idea how many he asked in the four Gospels? It's quite extraordinary. Uh, 173. So... um, That is more than two in every chapter. It was the regular conversation um, of Jesus. But why did he ask so many questions? And what sort of questions did he ask? Well, I would suggest that some were to demonstrate that he knew exactly what people were thinking. Um, When teachers of the law inwardly accused Jesus of blasphemy, immediately he knew this in his spirit and said to them, why are you thinking these things? Or when Pharisees asked him if he paid tax to Caesar, Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Uh, To Judas on the Mount of Olives, Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? So his questions demonstrated he knew people's thoughts and intentions. And then others were purely out of frustration, exasperation. 
Why does this generation seek for a miraculous sign? Or, it's going to rain, it's going to hot, be hot. You hypocrites, how is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? And then in Gethsemane, when the crowd, fully armed, descended upon him, he said, am I leading a rebellion that you come out to me with swords and clubs to capture me? Some were purely out of frustration over the state of man. Others were rhetorical. They were purely, I would suggest, encouraging the listener to consider his message or his viewpoint. After healing a paralyzed man, Jesus asked, well, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? And after a healing a man's shriveled hand, he said, I ask you, which is uh, lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? But there was no hint of needing a reply as such. It was just part of the rhetorical nature of Jesus' conversation. And then others of the questions that Jesus asked were directly to the Father. When predicting his death, Jesus said, "Uh, No, my heart is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And then immediately before his death on the cross, and in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Questions addressed directly to the Father. Powerful, heartfelt questions. And then others were a superb and brilliantly effective training tool. When Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? Conversation. Uh, when, When Jesus was alone with his disciples, he asked them, well, who do the crowds say that I am? But what about you? Who, who do you say that I am? And then after washing the disciples' feet, he put his clothes on, returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked. Just imagine the depth and the breadth of conversation that followed that sort of question. And then others still of Jesus' questions seem to me to be a much more of a tender, personal and inquiring touch. Who touched me? Guys, what were you arguing about on the road? What do you want me to do for you? Why are you sleeping? What do you want? Do you want to get well? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And the one that we just had read to us, do you love me? Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Tender personal questions that won people's hearts and attention. But you know, in the end, whatever category that we would put them under, Jesus just appeared to be interested in people. And that's what I want us to have a look at really now. Um, I was in Kyrgyzstan last month with a team of people from the UK um, who wanted to see the smile on the child's face after you'd given your shoebox uh, Operation Christmas Child Gift. And I spoke to the team in the morning, a sort of devotional really, before we started off on our busy day. And I talked to them around this, the value of Jesus asking questions and the value of us learning how to ask questions. And one young girl, she was, her name is Amy, Um, She was really pleased. She reported back, I had a great conversation with this lady, she said. 
And in response, and I, I, she said I'd remembered, and I, and, I, and I worked some questions that I wanted to ask that were uh, intimate but not over-personal, and it just worked fine. And she said I was really pleased because this lady said, you ask us questions, that makes us feel cared for. She said and it was just the completion of a really nice circle. This lady lived in one room with 17 relatives. Sweet lady, but and a sweet little girl. I'm delighted to receive your shoebox. Thank you very much. But uh, there are some warnings on this, really, because <laughs> with some amusement, I find that Western questions are often very uh, quantity or time-based. Uh, we say how many, how long, since when. We're particularly interested in things like this. I haven't really got the time. I was going to tell you the story of um, the village chief in Mozambique or the chief inspector in Uganda and I got in a right muddle with these guys um, just purely because they were so confused with my questions um, because I was asking how many as a sort of monitoring tool really to see the effectiveness of our programs etc but uh, that's for another day I will tell you one story actually um, in another former Soviet country where the church is persecuted um, I know one partner really well We've stayed in each other's homes and we've worked and travelled together in a number of countries and situations for almost a decade. But one day, just a couple of years ago, and in a moment of doubt, she asked another of my in-country friends, just reassure me, Alan really isn't from the KGB, is he? <laughs> so I think I've got a bit of a reputation for it. But uh, take the good bits of this, please. We need to learn the art of asking questions. So, again, when I lead a team, a short-term team, to another culture, we deliberately call them discovery teams as opposed to teams that go and fulfil a task, that do something. And, and, and often the often expressed agenda of the team member is, I want to come home with some more answers. And I turn that on its head and I say, well, actually, I'll tell you my agenda. I want you to come home asking more questions. Life is complex, it's multidimensional, so let's explore it, remain hungry to learn. The kingdom of God is a mystery, we won't know all the answers, but it's good to explore them. What is an open-ended question, Andrew? And what is the value of asking open-ended questions? You can't just say yes or no. <laughs> <laughs> the who, the what, the when, the where... The why, the how, although it doesn't begin with a W. Let's learn the art of asking questions, the right questions, at the right time, in the right spirit. This will vastly improve the quality of our relationships. So simply put, this morning is purely about increasing our hunger to learn and an encouragement to be genuinely interested in people. I'm amazed at how many people I meet and express an interest in, don't actually ask me any questions back. I think they're comfortable with it, but I might be, you know, sitting at the bus stop or sitting next to someone at the football or whatever, and we get chatting, and I ask some questions, and they're very happy to talk about themselves, and I realise afterwards, didn't ask me anything about myself at all. I think our society has quite lost the way in terms of expressing interest in one another, and I just have a feeling it's something um, that we can see modelled in Jesus and that will really help us in our relationships as we live 
and serve, live for and serve him. So that's for us individually, but what about the lessons that the church more generally or corporately can, um, can learn through asking questions? How good is the church at asking good, appropriate, compassionate, prophetic questions? It seems to me that in our communication, historically, the church has been at its best when it's preaching. Uh, This is what it's known for. We're very good at saying to people, we know how you need to live. Uh, Do this, believe this, behave in this way. We give commands, instruction, edicts, advice, even ultimatums. It's all one way. In our relationships, what we're best known for and what we're in our element in is when we are welcoming Apart from getting upset when people mess up our buildings, we're really quite good at what's called the attractional model of doing church. Come to this event, all are welcome. Bring your friends, entrance is free. We'll even reward you with a coffee as long as you stay till the end of what we want to do. But it's all on our terms, it's our agenda, uh, within our comfort zones. We know this environment and we're very comfortable with it. We should be, for heaven's sake. We've been doing it every Sunday morning for 60 years <laughs> Um, we, we, we load all the need for adjustment onto the poor visitor who has to enter our strange building, stand up and sit down at the right times, sing and speak to an invisible presence, eat flesh, drink blood, and listen to one sper- person speaking for 25 minutes without opportunity for debate or reply. That doesn't happen in many environments, does it? And in its action... In other words, when it serves, when we do actually reach out into the community, the church has typically done so with aid. It assumes what the poor needs and it gives it to them or it does it for them. So it hands out food at food banks, clothes at clothing stores, soups at soup kitchens, the hungry are fed, the naked are clothed, just like Jesus said. So what's the problem? Well, no problem as long as aid is given into genuine emergency situations, or, more alarmingly, that the goal is the self-fulfilment of the donor. Giving aid is indeed very rewarding for a time, but what happens, though, after you've been doing this for a year or so? What happens if you keep giving aid? Yeah, the word dependency comes in, doesn't it? There's interesting... um, the, there's something called the Oath for Compassionate Service. It was a, a, a writer called Robert Lupton, Toxic Charity. I don't know if you've ever read that. Um, but he has some very interesting things to say about this. I mean, one of them is never do for the poor what they have or could have the capacity to do for themselves. Another one is this, limit one-way giving to emergency situations. And he says this, give once and you elicit appreciation. Give twice, and you create anticipation. Give three times, and you create expectation. Give four times, and it becomes entitlement. And there you go, give five times, and you establish dependency. He has some other very interesting things to say. Strive to empower the poor through employment, lending, and investing. Subordinate self-interests to the needs of those being served and listen closely to those you seek to help and above all, do no harm. 
So anyway, we've talked about three approaches of the church, all reaching out, all serving, all wanting to see the kingdom come. We've talked about in our communicating that we favour a medium of preaching, in our relationships that we favour the attractional model, which welcomes, in our activities or our service, uh, we favour an aid-based model. But can you see something that links all three of these things? I would suggest this, that in every case, it's us that keeps hold of the power. We are in control. In every case, we are the managers of the environment, the conversation, the agenda, the boundaries, the limits. It's my party, and I'll try if I want to. But what would happen if I actually gave the power away? What would happen if the UK church committed not to its own agenda, but primarily to the agenda of its neighbourhood? We are in a post-Christian environment in our culture in the UK, and I really think it's something that we need to be looking at um, very fundamentally. And I'm excited to see a small but growing number of churches in the UK and around the world who've reduced or even stopped many of their activities and who instead have embraced a whole new approach, that of learning to ask questions, listening to their community, listening again, asking more questions, until they really understand their society, its trends, its passions, its frustrations. And then, with the love and compassion of Christ, they offer themselves as an intrinsic part of the brokenness of their society, as listeners, as equippers, as encouragers as facilitators, as mentors, slightly less programmatic, slightly more relational. So I love it when I see churches who, instead of just preaching, welcome more dialogue, who, instead of just welcoming um, outsiders in, go and join the quiz night at the local pub and who instead of merely giving aid to the poor, other than in emergency situations, instead of learning to become facilitators of their development and empowerment, these churches, they're not changing their doctrines, their morals, their absolutes of the gospel. They're merely changing the packaging for communicating this wonderful gospel to a rapidly changing world. So we're okay at preaching, at welcoming, at giving aid, but we're not so good at asking questions. And Jesus asked 173 of them. Questions, I'm suggesting this morning, are purely the doorway. The doorway, albeit only the very first step, to addressing this power imbalance, voluntarily giving the agenda away to the other person. So now we're living to their agenda rather than to our own. I've now lost control and I've now submitted to the position of being a listener, a servant, a responder. We hear a lot about being the hands and feet of Jesus and quite a lot about being his mouthpiece. But we don't hear a lot about being the ears of Jesus, do we? Maybe we need to learn how to ask questions again and to listen. So this is my daily work with 29 churches in Kyrgyzstan and now with 515 churches in Rwanda and another 20 churches in Uganda, to help the church learn to live and to respond to the development agenda of its community. Our Raising Families program is built on this concept. Instead of going to the community saying, I have a vision, 
I have a dream, I have a burden. We use that one, don't we? It's funny because burden in the scriptures is always about the stuff um, that's negative or the things which, praise God, he relieves us from. Anyway, we still have burdens, <laughs> uh, visions, dreams, as we call them, to initiate a crèche, to do a clothing store, a rehab unit or whatever. But instead of doing those things, we're saying, no, church, firstly, listen to its community again. Be part of the brokenness of its own neighbourhood and society and uh, complete what we call a needs assessment on, based on what they've heard and understood their neighbours felt needs to be. So, praise God, through this programme, families have wanted and been able to access education and health care, generate income through business skills and savings and loans groups, overcome addictions that were destroying healthy relationships. Many people, many people have repented and come to Christ, and neighbourhoods have become places of laughter and song and hope once more. And it all starts with asking simple, genuine, hungry-to-learn questions. So that's something, you know, just for us to think about, really, as far as the church and the big picture. But in closing, really, this morning, I'd like us just to come back um, to listening to Jesus again. Remember, we actually were talking about questions that Jesus asks us. And um, I had a little time talking about the value of us individually talking questions to others, asking questions. And we went into the role of the church, maybe, for us to think about. But let's come right back now and think about the questions. What's Jesus asking me today? Let's think of some of these questions he asked. Who touched me? Do you remember the context of that one? So beautiful, isn't it? Huge crowd milling around. Don't want to distract him. Who touched me? This one? To the disciples on the road. About who's the greatest. What's Jesus asking us today? What were you arguing about? What do you want me to do for you? (laughs) Why are you sleeping? What do you want? Do you want to get well? Surely, for heaven's sake, you've been lying here at the pool of Bethesda for 42 years. Of course I want to be well. No, not necessarily at all. To be healed would be to take on responsibilities. To be healed would be to leave the familiarity of the environment I've known for four plus decades. To be healed means that I would probably have to leave some of my friends and the camaraderie. To be healed means I've got to find a way of earning my own income. Do you want to get well? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? (laughs) So beautiful. Jesus to Peter, do you love me? Do, do you love me? <laughs> Peter, do you love me? <laughs> Thinking about this this morning, I have a couple of other questions for you. Is Jesus saying this this morning? Why are you afraid? Why are you anxious? What you shall wear? 
what you shall eat. Why are you anxious? Let's listen. Listen to Jesus. And let his question into our life this morning be prophetic. Be healing. Let it deliver. Let it save. Let it restore. Let it empower. Let it forgive.